Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. I'm currently at Hong Kong Airport, waiting to board my flight to the Olympics. Um, If my voice sounds muffled, it's because I'm wearing a mask. That's The Globe's Asia correspondent, James Griffiths, en route to Beijing for the 2022 Winter Olympics. The Games officially kick off on Friday. I'm now on board the plane with the rest of the Olympic passengers. There was a whole one other journalist who boarded with me from Hong Kong, and I should be in Beijing in about four hours. This is the second Olympics during the pandemic, and they're taking place in a country with very strict COVID regulations. I'm currently queuing to go through immigration after doing several bureaucratic processes and one of the worst, most uncomfortable COVID tests I think I've ever done. Everyone has to go through testing each day. Good morning. It is 9am and I'm about to take my temperature for my Beijing 2022 app. It's something that I have to fill out every, every day for 14 days in the lead up to the Olympics. No fever, no fatigue, no dry cough, no sore throat, no headache, no muscle pain. Today on the show, James Griffiths takes us inside the Olympic bubble to talk about the atmosphere there, the politics around these games, and also tells us about a robot that makes cocktails. This is The Decibel. James, it's great to see you again. Thanks for having me. So you're in Beijing now, and we've heard that there's a ton of COVID protocols in place for the Olympics. Can I ask, what's the most extreme protocol that you have to abide by in Beijing? I don't know. There's a lot. There's so many of them happening at once that it's that it's difficult to to pick a single one out. You know, we're very much. Uh, you know, the system is called a closed loop, and we are very much in a closed loop. And even after four days, that loop is starting to feel <laughs> very restricted. How does it feel to be in this bubble? Do you feel contained? Yes, <laughs> we definitely feel contained. It's it, it's all quite surreal because uh, you know I, I've been in kind of Greater China for almost a decade now, and 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 have been to Beijing uh, many times, and and it is very strange to simultaneously be in the city and, and not be in the city. Once the actual games really really kick off, it, you know a lot of this will go away, and we'll just be rushing from event to event. But at the moment, it it, it is certainly a, a bit of a weird feeling. Um, I heard there was a there was also a. a, a... I don't, know what, I don't even know how to say it, like a robot restaurant or something. What's what's the deal with that? <laughs> so in the media center, there is a uh, large cafeteria where, where all the, the, the journalists and staff are, are eating every day. And, and that's about 50% robot powered. There are these um, robots that they look like uh, kind of assembly line robots that you traditionally see, you know, making cars or something. Uh, but instead, they're, they're cooking fries or they're um, putting a burger together. And then there's also a section of the dining hall where your dishes are delivered from above they they come down from the ceiling and you take them off this little platter and there is a robot bartender that can make cocktails very slowly 
How slowly? Uh, it takes about 10, 15 minutes to, to get a drink every time. And, you know, it, it, it's all it's all pretty gimmicky. And, and I will say there's been nothing uh, that I've experienced robotics wise that couldn't have been done far more efficiently and easily by a human being. So the robot takes 10 minutes to make a cocktail, but does it make a good cocktail? It makes an okay cocktail. It wasn't the most <laughs> amazing thing in the world, I'll say. We, we've heard about this app on your phone that everyone has to download in order to, to come to the games. Can you explain what that is? It's kind of just an information app. You know, it contains bus schedules and things like that. It's called My 2022 and it's, it's for all attendees. But as well as that, it also caught, it contains a uh, health monitoring thing that we had to fill out. But there has been some concern. Uh, Citizen Lab, the, the University of Toronto um, research firm, they had a look at it and, and were concerned about the way that it, it stores user data and, it, and its kind of protections. Not necessarily that anything nefarious was happening, but that it basically wasn't very well built, especially for something that has, you know, you're putting passport data in, you're putting health information in, you know, you want that to have pretty ironclad encryption and and protections. And this just didn't. So when you downloaded it, then did you have any, I guess, reservations about putting that on your phone? Uh, not really, but that's because uh, before we flew to, to Beijing, we got uh, burner devices for everything. So, so my phone is, 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 was a clean phone before I left. I'm talking to you on a clean computer. Every, everything is separate from my, uh, my identity and my accounts um, in kind of real life. Uh, and that's, you know, that's following the advice of our security team. And, it, and it's pretty much in keeping with what you know, every journalist that I've talked to here is doing, and then also a large number of the Olympic staff and the the athletes even, just because of general concerns about surveillance and hacking in China. How will all of this affect the way that you report on the Olympics? We're being paid to watch sport at the highest level. It's not too much of a sacrifice to to have to do some COVID tests at the same time. What I think uh, might change the tone of reporting um, is both that lack of access to ordinary people and and to Beijingers. You know, if people think back to Olympics coverage about how much of it sometimes is about the character of the city that it's in, or and even the host country, or about how people are engaging with the games, especially in a country like like China, which is not a traditional winter sports country you know it would have been interesting to talk to people about you know what was it like to watch curling for the first time you know have you been uh, interested in, in going skiing since they opened all these new ski resorts those kind of stories aren't really going to happen and, and that's understandable because of the covid precautions but i think it could risk backfiring to a certain extent for the the hosts because as people will be aware there's been so much political controversy in the lead up to these games with various countries doing the diplomatic boycott the non-sports stories say that's coming out of the games in the coming weeks may be much more of the the political stuff than the the type of soft power and you know more pleasant stories about china that the beijing government might wish that were were being produced about, I guess, the the political side of this, because there have been a lot of political tensions leading up to the Olympics. Uh, Several countries, including Canada, have uh, diplomatically boycotted the Games, so we're not sending any diplomats there because of China's human rights record. What impact will this diplomatic boycott have? In terms of how people engage with the Olympics and how people watch the Olympics at home, 
you know, very little to none. Uh, what's interesting is is in the run-up, I was talking to analysts about this and, and, and one of them pointed out that the diplomatic gathering that happens, especially ahead of the opening ceremony, it, you know, is, is often a bit like Davos or, or a kind of UN event. This is a rare gathering of world leaders and, and you know, top business people and, and, and other top kind of international officials. To have that can be very useful for the host country. It can, you can do a lot of soft diplomacy and, and quiet talks on the sidelines and things like that. And, and so obviously, China will be missing out on that opportunity. Xi Jinping, president, has not left China in, in two years since the coronavirus pandemic started. So he has missed out on private chats in person with, with most world leaders. And while he'll be talking to the likes of Putin, there won't be that chance for a chat with Trudeau or with Biden or you know anyone else like that that might have gone, you know, were the situation different. It's interesting. So you said that Vladimir Putin and, and Xi Jinping will be meeting, I guess. Are there any geopolitics at play here or anything that we can watch for that, that might be interesting that comes out of that? There have been reports... Uh, it's worth stating that China has battered these down very, very forcefully. But there have been reports that uh, that she had already asked Putin not to proceed with any actions uh, regarding Ukraine during the Olympics because, you know, China has paid a lot of money for this event and they would like it to be the main uh, global news story for at least a couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, it, I think maybe Putin's presence here you know, could affect the situation in Ukraine. You know, obviously, he's going to be focused on on diplomacy with with Xi Jinping, who, who is his most important ally. And, you know, it may, may be then focused on, on some sport for a while. And, and that might help ease tensions in Eastern Europe. And I think also China will be looking to show that despite these calls for an Olympic boycott that has been largely led by Washington, that there will be a large number of, of uh, top foreign officials in attendance and, you know, not just kind of traditional allies like, like Russia, but also European officials. And, 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 that, and you know, and, and I think French, French President Emmanuel Macron will be here at some point to, uh, you know, engage with the handover to France, which is it's the next Olympic host. So, so, you know, China will be keen to send the message that the diplomatic boycott is not having an effect. And, and I think it'll be interesting to see how they do that. Uh, Canada and, and China aren't on particularly friendly terms at this point in time. Um, of course, the whole situation with the, the two Michaels held in China uh, and the issue of Canada detaining Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of Huawei. From what you've heard, um, are Canadian journalists and Canadian athletes, is, is, I guess, is anyone at all concerned about about safety or anything like that? No, um, you know, I, uh, before I left, I, I did have uh, some people saying, oh, you know, are you worried about going to China? And, and you know, I imagine other, uh, colleagues have heard sim- similar um, questions, uh, but but I don't think anyone really is, um, and, and certainly not after landing and being in the bubble. You, you know, th- this is very much a sporting event and, and everyone you interact with from volunteers to uh, Olympic staff to, to kind of Chinese organizers or people here in the hotel are, you know, incredibly friendly and welcoming and, and helpful. And I, I don't think there would be any real value for China in causing an incident that, like that of trying to hassle Canadian journalists or you know athletes or staff. And, and then also, I think they are helped by the COVID restrictions. What happens if someone decides to, to speak out against China, though, like if an athlete decides to protest in some way, even with like, you know, wearing something on their gear, it, what, what would happen then? 
So the IOC has been asked uh, a number of times about about the potential for protests, and they have reiterated various things that are in the charter and and, and they're about you know ensuring uh, freedom of speech for athletes and things like that. Um, the Chinese organisers have been rather less clear. Um, one of the Beijing organising committee officials said that um, you know any any expression that's in line with the Olympic spirit will be protected, uh, but he added. Any behavior or speech that is against the Olympic spirit, especially against the Chinese laws and regulation, are also subject to certain punishment, which is, uh, you know, mm-hmm. slightly uh, daunting language for him to be using. And mm-hmm. it's not clear how uh, China would react, you know, were there to be a, a podium protest or, or some other kind of uh, protest by athletes. Uh, a lot of human rights organizations have actually been, you know, quietly saying maybe don't do anything at the Olympics because because of these concerns that, you know, use your platform, but use it when you're outside of China. So we've talked about a few negative things here uh, to have to do with the Olympics. But I mean, a lot of times before the Olympic Games, there are negative things to talk about, like the ballooning costs, right? And the protests and the venues that get built and aren't really used again. Once the games often start, though, the attention seems to kind of focus onto the sport and everything that's going on there. Do you think the same thing will happen here? And, you know, when when we're all kind of wrapped up in the sport, that's what's really going to be what we remember about these games. I think one effect of the diplomatic boycott that might change that is that there is pressure on certain broadcasters in, in these countries, so on the CBC in Canada and on NBC in the US, that they are facing a lot of pressure from protesters and human rights groups uh, about their role in the Olympics and the fact that their home governments have kind of not provided any cover because they are officially boycotting them. That might create a degree of expectation that there is continued coverage of, of the political you know story throughout these games. NBC, for, for their part, have said that they will not lose sight of the geopolitical context uh, during the games. Uh, and so that might change the vibe. But, but like you said, it's pretty much a, a, a consistent pattern at every Olympics that the story is negative until the opening ceremony and then it's sports, sports, sports. And then it's either a kind of, ah, well, you know, that went fine or it was a success. And I think even maybe Sochi in Russia, which was the last, you know, really controversial Olympics and, and happened amid great tensions, you know, that didn't necessarily become the hugely negative story throughout the Olympics. People did just watch sports uh, towards the end of it. Yeah, as despite all this stuff, you know, the Olympics are supposed to be a, a fun occasion of celebrating sports and, and people coming together. So uh, just just lastly here, James, what are you most looking forward to over the next few weeks at the Olympics? Not to offend Canadian uh, listeners, uh, as, as you can hear, I'm not originally from Canada, but um, I'm not going to be particularly watching curling or hockey, uh, <gasps> but I, I, I will be watching uh, as much ice skating as I can and also probably heading up to Jiangjiakou Co to try and watch the skiing. James, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to speak with us today. Thanks, Monica. Great to talk to you. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.